Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I remember tasting this pasta in this sauce, 
I remember my ears and my cheeks got completely warm and everything was quiet for a second. I was like, wow. When I eat something that's really spectacular, my feet start moving. <laughs> do, you, do you also get a physical reaction when you eat something that's just really hits the spot. I do. I do this like little jiggle from side to side just with my with my torso. It's like I sit there rocking in the chair. <laughs> Today my interview is with Nadine Levy Redzepi. We chat about what it's like to run Noma, one of the world's top restaurants, how to serve anchovies to a four-year-old, and some of Nadine's favorite foods to make at home. But first we'll hear from journalist Joe Fassler, who brings us the story of a nationwide salmonella outbreak. The FDA recalled 550 million eggs during that outbreak. They all came from a single poultry farm in Iowa. Joe, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here because you wrote this great piece in the new food economy about a guy called Jack DeCoster, who for decades has run an egg business, a large egg business, and it's, it's a sordid story. I, I guess the most egregious example of what he was doing is when 500 million eggs went out. They recalled in 2010, and about 56,000 people were sickened. So do you want to just take us back in time and tell us a little about who this guy is and how he ran his business? Yeah, so this was a um, small-town guy who, who grew up in Maine. And he, he started out actually just with a chicken coop in his backyard. And he began to realize that he could make money off of eggs, and the more chickens he had, the more eggs he could have and the more money he could make. And so he just started breeding them the old-fashioned way in his in his yard. But he scaled up and scaled up, and eventually, by the 80s and 90s, he's a major sort of egg mogul. But I, I started reporting on him back in 2010, where there was this unprecedented outbreak of salmonella from his facilities in Iowa that you mentioned. And and looking back at the paperwork and court filings, I realized that this is a guy who'd had years and years and years of violations under his belt, not just public health issues and, and, and people getting sick, but also all manner of, of various labor issues and environmental issues as well. So he was sort of a notorious bad actor. So, so let's just talk about some specifics other than the outbreak. I mean, we're talking about these huge barns. You said a room was so filled with manure that it pushed the screen out of the door, allowing rodents access to the building. I won't, I won't go through all the details, but I mean, this is not, you know, a casual outbreak of salmonella that, that perchance happened to this guy. We're talking about conditions that were, I mean, almost indescribable. So the obvious question is, everyone talks about food safety and federal inspectors. How could someone possibly run something at this scale so egregious? That's the obvious question, right? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and, and like you mentioned, a lot of this comes down to, with salmonella, the basic structural integrity of the barns. Um, it's something that a chicken can carry, absolutely. But a lot of the time, the way it's getting into the bird population of a farm in the first place is through wild animals who are, who are getting into the barns, but usually attracted by the feed. And through their feces, it's, it's getting into the birds, um, the, the, um, the bacteria that causes salmonella. Um, and so this is something you can actually see with the naked eye. I mean, I, I did myself. It is a regulatory conundrum. Uh, in the wake of this unprecedented outbreak, actually the two uh, regulatory bodies responsible for looking at eggs, both USDA 
and the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, uh, they couldn't actually decide whose problem this this was. They actually couldn't agree on whose whose fault this had been. So I, I think part of it was that these agencies are really underfunded. They don't have necessarily boots on the ground, um, enough boots on the ground all the time. And their their mandates are often quite small. It can be like to inspect the quality of an egg, but not the environment that's surrounding the egg. And for all these reasons, it sort of slipped under the radar. Now, that being said, DeCosta was also charged with bribing officials and getting folks to look the other way. That is something that definitely happened. So so in, in some cases in the past, not necessarily in this case, there had been corruption involved. But the problem is, really comes down to these regulatory agencies aren't quite sure whose domain this was. Yeah, but the, <laughs> the scope and scale of the problem was both in terms of years and size, horrific. So there were plaintiffs, there were people bringing suits against him. So it wasn't that it was unnoticed. Is this, you said it's interagency political turf battles, but how does something this big and egregious go on for decades? Absolutely. Part of it was overlapping jurisdictional disputes between two agencies. But, you know, another aspect of this is DeCoster had been fined before. He had absolutely been in trouble. Um, the Probably the best example is he was given a $3.6 million fine by OSHA in, in 1996. At the time, it was historic, but he paid it. And then he moved on. And some would argue that DeCoster had actually sort of factored these kinds of fines, even a historic fine like that, into his business plan. You know, it's very, very un, uh, unusual for the CEOs of food companies to do time over public health outbreaks when they can be proven to be cul- culpable. It has happened before, and it has happened now. Jack DeCoster was sentenced with his son and business partner to three months in jail last year. But, you know, you get the sense that for him, until, you know, he, he actually had some personal skin in the game, he was willing to to pay the costs and, and go on doing his dirty work. So, so where did you come out after this investigation? You say five different agencies, USDA agencies, are responsible for eggs arriving untainted to the table. So do, do you think this is pervasive in other areas of the food industry? You think this was a one-off, that the rest of the egg industry actually is doing a pretty good job? What, what was your takeaway? It's unquestionable that DeCoster was really a bad actor. I don't think he was uh, necessarily indicative of the entire industry. He was notorious. He'd made headlines before. That being said, uh, we just had this year an outbreak from uh, North Carolina. You know, uh, many millions of eggs being recalled. And, you know, I, I reported on the the conditions that were found there by FDA. And it was somewhat similar story. You know, mice, mice in the barns, overloaded lagoons, unsanitary conditions. And so I think that there are issues. I mean, this is the direction that we're moving in, where these agencies have less and less money. There's less and less human oversight. And it's outsourced more and more to technology um, and to the industry itself. So you walk into a poultry barn, okay? Yeah. Could you describe what does it look like? 
Sure. Usually the way it is, is on either side, there's these walls of battery cages. And I think there's usually, you know, eight or eight or 10 birds. It sort of varies, but I think there's eight or 10 birds in these cages. The sort of famous line is that each one has no more than like a piece of printer paper of room to stand on. In a free range barn, would the chickens would not be in cages and they would have quote unquote access to the outside, although few of them would go outside. So they would not be caged, right? In theory. I mean, p- people advertise cage free facilities all the time, right? So cage-free, yeah. That So that is, I think, one of the biggest misunderstandings, consumer misunderstandings out there. Cage-free eggs, uh, I think, conjures the image in many people's minds of backyard chickens, right. you know? Um, it's really far from the case. What ch- which cage-free essentially means is that there there's sort of one big cage or, or a series of, of, of larger environments that they're all stuck in. But it's the same situation where it's a large windowless barn. And uh, and that when you enter, there's just a sea of chickens all in there together on the ground, but they don't go outside. So before you did this story, were you eating regular supermarket eggs and now you're now you now you're only eating pasture raised? Does it change your uh, your your habits as a consumer? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean it really has. I've been to slaughterhouses of other kinds. I've I've been on farms of all kinds, and and something about this really stuck with me. Um, and and you know, eggs are you can get them at the farmers market. You can get them from other places, and so I've never had trouble finding alternatives. And something about the story just stuck with me emotionally and made me want to do that. Last question: Any moment during this whole investigation that really sticks with you? Yeah, I was amazed at how far back this went. And how the character of this man seemed to be consistent through decades and decades of time. I talked to some people who, you know, nearly felt that their lives had been ruined by this guy. They can't even have a picnic outdoors without getting dive-bombed by a biblical plague of flies. Hmm. You know, or people who just knew about him as a sort of local legend and, and um, you know, I went to the local library in the, in the children's room is the, you know, the Jack DeCoster room. So it was a full range. You know, you, you saw it all. I mean, it really was a sort of classic uh, American archetype, I think, in some ways, where he was, he had his supporters and, and he was incredibly divisive and, and had his enemies and everything in between. Joe, thank you very much. Great reporting. Uh, a difficult story in many ways, but one that everyone should read. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Glad for the opportunity to talk. That was Joe Fassler, Features Editor at the New Food Economy. Mill Street Radio is available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen whenever you want. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Google Play. Right now, my co-host Sarah Mult and I will be taking your call. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television and author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Heather. Hi, Heather. How can we help you today? Hi, guys. Um, my question has to do with making a really great salad dressing. I have nice olive oil. I've tried different kinds of vinegar. Um, the point is, no matter what I do, first of all, the dressing doesn't really cling to things and ends up kind of at the bottom. And secondly, no matter what, you know, I have a pretty strong vinegary taste. 
so anyway, I just wondered, what is your advice for making um, a kind of vinaigrette that I, I um, love this question. would be more successful? I totally agree with you. For 30 years, I had the same complaints. And there's this mafia of French dressing experts who run around talking about three to one, oil to vinegar. You have to use olive oil, et cetera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sarah, don't throw your coffee cup at me. Um, so first of all, most vinegars are too high in acid. They're five, six, seven percent, right? And this three to one ratio, just throw that out the window. It's totally meaningless. It just depends on the kind of oil and the kind of vinegar. I would use a lower acidity vinegar, a rice wine vinegar, for example, or you can use a white balsamic vinegar, which is not that high in acid, or you can dilute your vinegar with a little water, which brings down the acidity as well. Secondly, you don't need olive oil. You know, a lot of places in Europe, they don't tend to use olive oil on their dressing. They might use grapeseed oil or sunflower oil or something else. So you could use a higher ratio of oil to vinegar, four, five, six to one. And finally, I wouldn't use a whisk. I'd use a jar. Jacques Pepin uses an old mustard jar, but you could use a canning jar, which is what I use. Mark the outside of the jar with your levels of vinegar and oil. Always put a little bit of mustard in, just a tiny bit, like a teaspoon, which will help emulsify it. Emulsifying the vinegar and the oil helps to have it stick to the greens and also not wilt the greens. And one last suggestion, sitar, which is a well-known Middle Eastern... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little sitar, I find, in the salad dressing is also terrific. Really, really adds a lot of flavor. It's a nice secret ingredient. That sounds good, too. Well, I'm excited. So throw out all the ratios. Do anything you want to do. If it tastes too acidic, add more oil. Now, Sarah has been extremely patient. It's her turn. Well, no, no, I don't disagree with what you said. Um, do you add salt to your dressings? I, oh, I do. And yeah. when do you put in the salt? Uh, at the end. Salt dissolves better in vinegar. What I usually do is start, I, I use a jar right now, a mustard jar too. And mustard, I agree with Chris, uh, mustard really helps to emulsify. So would chopped up anchovy, by the way. But I put in the whatever acid I've decided and salt in the jar, and I shake it until the salt's dissolved, and then I add, you know, the oil. But the other thing is season the greens. So right before you toss the salad, oh. sprinkle it with salt and pepper. That's a good point. Just a little bit of salt. Oh, okay. And then uh-huh. I really recommend, and I know this sounds crazy, but tossing the salad with your hands. You won't bruise the greens. You'll have a pretty good idea if you do it every time when you got the right amount of dressing. That's my two cents. Yeah, I think most people overdress their salads anyway. And it's surprising if you use your hands how little dressing you need. Yeah. It's about the greens. It's really not about the dressing. Mm-hmm. Also, one last comment is it depends on the greens. Frise, yeah. radicchio, anything that's bitter and tough, you could use actually a stronger dressing like anchovies. Yum. Well, I'm, I'm excited. Okay. Good. Thank you, guys. Give it a okay. shot. I appreciate it. I'm yeah. sure you'll have success. Okay. Take care. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Jeanette Hansen. Hi, Jeanette. Where are you calling from? Decatur, Georgia. How can we help you today? Well, I've been cooking a long time. And it seems like in the last few years, temperatures have sort of gone up instead of roasting chickens at, you know, 350 or 325. Everything seems to be getting cooked at 400, like vegetables are roasted at such high temperatures. You have to watch them all the time or they sort of get cooked too much. And I guess I had also thought that you get more nutritional value 
at lower temperatures. Is this like a trend or is there a reason for cooking at higher temperatures or what's the right temperature to use? Well, I give you a rule, which is made to be broken, but I would say something big like a chicken, a turkey, a roast, in general, lower temperatures are the way to go, like 300, 275, 325, because at high temperatures, the outside gets overcooked by the time the inside gets cooked. So a big roast could get to 180, 200 degrees on the outside before the inside comes up to whatever temperature you want. So that's a good rule. Uh, smaller things like Brussels sprouts, for example, or vegetables, you can roast at high temperatures because you don't have the outside-inside problem and you get a lot of uh, charring or browning at higher temperatures. So Brussels sprouts in a cast iron pan, for example, over a very high temperature in 10 minutes, you get a lot of flavor development. So big things I tend to cook low and slow. Small things you can cook fast and high. I want to add on to that. The thing that Chris said about cooking larger roasts at lower temperature is you also have far less shrinkage. So I agree with Chris on that one. As for the vegetables, I think it's a flavor reason that everybody's been roasting them at such a high temperature because they sort of, the sugars come out and they get brown around the edges and they're really yummy and crispy and not bland and watery. However, there has been reports for, I don't know, 15 years or so about high heat cooking being bad for our health in terms of it creates these toxins and that it really isn't something you should do a lot of. I mean, having understood that, it hasn't stopped me from... I love roasted asparagus. I love roasted broccoli. I love roasted cauliflower. I just try not to take it till it's really charred. So, so on your headstone, it's going to say the roasted bro- cauliflower... Killed me. Di- killed killed me. Here lies <laughs> right. Sarah Bolton. Right. The roasted right. asparagus <laughs> did her in. I don't think we have to worry about roasted vegetables. Uh, you know, you can worry about Lyme disease. You can worry about well, deep frying, coastal grilling, flooding, but... broiling. No, actually, it really is a concern. There have been studies done. Oh, it creates toxins. We have talked on this show so many times that butter was bad for you. Now butter is good for you. Coffee was bad for you. Now coffee is good for you. You know they're going to discover that high heat cooking. Well, you're probably much. right. There you go. Any rate. So yes, I think big roast chicken. You can keep at a lower temperature, but pan roasting vegetables at a high temperature is a good idea. Except except it might kill you. Except it might kill you. Yeah. Not really. (laughs) I still do it. I still do it. I don't care. You know, you make choices. So thanks, Jeanette. Thanks for calling. All right. Thank you. This has been helpful. Okay. (laughs) Hopefully. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm Christopher Kibble. If you have any question about the kitchen or anything else, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That number, once again, is 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Richard from Lexington, Kentucky. Hi, Richard. I'm going on 77 years old, and I recently bought some strawberries. And I know from a lifetime of experience about strawberries, they have a very, very short shelf life. Even in the field, you know, you pick them and you've got to eat them within a few days. Well, the, the strawberries that I recently bought, they got put on the back of a shelf on one of the lower shelves in the refrigerator. And I forgot about them for about a week. And when I finally discovered them, I thought, my God, these are all going to be rotten. And not a single one of them was rotten. And that really surprised me. No, I, I, it's a really good point because I used to grow strawberries a lot. And you're right. If you didn't get them on a Monday, by Wednesday, they'd be rotten. Even in the fridge, after you picked them, they wouldn't last more than two or three days. 
And you're right, I see strawberries all year round. You cut them inside, they're not red, they're white. They're completely tasteless, and they keep their shape for a very long time. They're probably being bred the way apples used to be. Well, a lot of apples still are. They're not bred for flavor or texture. They're bred to last long. And how did they taste? Well, they reminded me of uh, an egg carton. <laughs> yeah. To get a good, a really good strawberry today, like a really good tomato, is hard. So you yeah. think it's the seeds they were grown from? It's the soil, mm-hmm. uh, it's the growing conditions, how much water have applied. I mean, the best tomatoes, you don't water very much, right? Yeah. The same thing with strawberries. So I would just would stop this buying supermarket strawberries. Like I said, you know, they're pretty, they're big, yeah. and they have a shelf life of at least a month. I know it because <laughs> I tested it. That's terrible. Well, I mean, it's interesting because shelf life is a relevant concept if you never want to eat them. Yeah. <laughs> so sort of, so longevity is kind of like, well, who cares how, how long they last? I mean, after the month, did you actually eat them or you just threw them out? I ate some the next day. I ate some the next day and the next day. And I discovered they would last really, truly a month. And that's not a strawberry. Well, no. I know. Maybe they grow them for those fruit bouquets. You know, <laughs> they, they, they deliver. You know, <laughs> maybe, you're they're perfect for that. My concern was, are they genetically modified? You know, you may have a point. I mean, they're certainly hybrids, but... Whether they're genetically modified, I don't know. But we all agree. Just don't eat them. Okay, thank you Thanks, for calling. All <laughs> Take right, care. Richard. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name's Jacob. I'm calling from Phoenix. Oh, boy. Hot. <laughs> how are you, and how can we help you? Um, I'm calling to get some advice. This year, I decided to start drying some different foods and using the heat, actually, for that. Oh. And... So I've set to building a cabinet so I can dry a large amount of goods at once. And I want to make sure I'm picking a surface that would be best for drying anything on, including more acidic foods like tomatoes. Well, like drying tomatoes is a little, is different than drying herbs, right? I mean, that's a little dicier. Yeah. Right. And I'd mostly be drying, you know, different chili peppers and herbs. So you're doing this in a cabinet, and the cabinet is in your house? Uh, no, it would be meant to keep outside. Oh. I was planning on using, like, a stainless steel mesh for the paneling on it in the front. So so air could circulate through? Correct. Air circulation is really important in drying. Are you going to get enough circulation? I believe with the level of heat we have in the summer and the dryness that comes with that, and since the whole thing would be full of holes with the mesh, it should be okay. I did do a test run in, like, a colander that I covered with cheesecloth, and I found, like, a dry peppers in just a handful of days instead of hmm. hanging them in my kitchen for weeks. Um, because presumably your kitchen's a little bit air-conditioned. This is 132 right. degrees outside his kitchen door. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> Yeah, I do hang them by the window. I also have started doing like a celery leaf and green onions. Mm. I'll use the carrot tops and make kind of like a mirepas mix to toss in soups or, you know. That's great. You're a serious cook. Impressive. Yeah, it's fun. Good for you. And he's not risk averse. Yeah, obviously. Evidently. Yeah. Well, you haven't keeled over yet, so that's a good sign. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for calling, Jacob. That was a very interesting question. Thank you. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you. 
You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Nadine Levy-Redzepi, author of Downtime, Deliciousness at Home. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook I often cook with it so if I'm creating some kind of stew I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash obviously (laughs) and I think because of that Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think 
That makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Day Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with Nadine Levy-Redzepi. Nadine has worked at Noma in Copenhagen since 2005, and her husband, Renee, is the restaurant's founder and chef. We wanted to find out what Nadine cooks at home for her family and some of her favorite recipes. Nadine, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so you grew up in Portugal. How long did you live in Portugal? Uh, well, I was born there, and then we left Portugal when I was about four and a half. But I didn't go to kindergarten or anything there, so I spent all day with my mom, like tending to our uh, farmland and the animals. Let me ask a question about your household. Yes. My wife and I work together, but we have a regular schedule, so we're home in the evening. How does a household run when both of you are involved in the restaurant business? What do you do about dinner, for example? So um, before I got pregnant, before we had kids, I was working uh, as a waitress, front of house. And then uh, I started working in the office so I could have more normal hours and actually be home in the evening with our kids. So I, I get to make dinner and be home with the kids and put them to sleep. Two days a week, Renee's home also for dinner, and then he gets to do all the bedtime stuff. You have three daughters, right? Yes, exactly. How old are they? Uh, so the youngest will be four next month, and then seven and ten. So since you are intimately involved in the culinary world, do you just make one meal, and if they don't, if the four-year-old doesn't like it, then the four-year-old doesn't like it, or do you actually cater to people's individual tastes? No, I make one meal. We all eat the same thing, and since I don't have to make pasta for one and rice for another and fish for the third, we all eat the same, then sure. I have time to make dessert, or we have starter too. I like to make sure that they don't snack when they come home from school. I fa- I've found out that that's the trick. Hmm. Make sure that they're hungry when we have dinner. Then they're much more open to eating everything. You know, I've, I've played that same trick on all of my guests over 40 years, <laughs> which I, I feed them almost nothing before they get to dinner. They're starving. <laughs> so even if I make the worst pot roast, they're just like, they're so grateful. <laughs> uh, so l- let's talk about the recipes. I love your book. Uh, Thank you. One of the recipes you talk about that has some history is chicken livers with a sauce of tomatoes and chilies. Yes. Where does that come from? And why is that sort of comfort food in your house? Well, this is a dish that I've grown up with since I was little. Uh, One of the things my mother had to learn when we lived in Portugal was to do the same as everyone else did in this little village. And you would raise the chickens, sell the chickens, and then you keep all the offal to yourself. So this is a dish that the village women taught my mom how to make. And I've it's always been one of my favorite dishes. And I've obviously, I took it over when I was about 14, 15, when we would have this. I think I've improved it. Um, and it was also the first dish that I ever cooked for Renee. There was a 
a recipe called Seal the Deal Pasta. It was yes. very simple, tomatoes <laughs> and beurre blanc, which I guess sealed the deal. But mm-hmm. you want to just tell the story of that recipe? Yes. Uh, so the the pasta with the tomatoes, basil, and the beurre blanc sauce is the first thing that Rene cooked for me when we'd been together for about four months. That was the first time he took a day off. And um, I remember he, he put this dish in front of me, and I was like, oh, that's pretty simple. I was I was expecting uh, maybe something a little more extravagant looking, but I remember tasting this pasta in this sauce. I remember my ears and my cheeks got completely warm, and mm. everything was quiet for a second. I was like, "Wow!" So because of this, this is how uh, Renee likes to joke and call it. You know, that's the dish that sealed the deal. So that's that's why it has that name. Do, do you get? Um... Like when I get eat something that's really spectacular, my feet start moving, start tapping my feet. Do you, do you also get a physical reaction when you eat something that just really hits the spot in some way? I I do. I do this like little jiggle from side to side just with my with my torso. It's like I sit there rocking in the chair. Like a one-year-old in a high chair, right? Yes, exactly. So, uh, you have this really, uh, you know, I, I've read thousands of words about how to poach an egg and you have a very simple way of poaching an egg. Uh, how do you do it? Well, I've tried experimenting for years with poaching eggs, and I always seem to lose more of the egg white than I'd, I'd like, and it bugs me that I waste it. So uh, Juan Marie Arzac in San Sebastian has an awesome way of poaching eggs. Basically, you um, take a little olive oil, put it on some cling film that you place over a small bowl. You so this is, you're talking about in, in, in American terms, plastic wrap? Yes. Yeah. Make sure to get the one that's without all these like BPA and right. all this stuff, obviously. The good cling film. Um, you open the egg into this over the little bowl in the plastic wrap. And if you have some chives or like some small strips of bacon or, you know, the the edge of a piece of ham, the fat, you could put that in there on top of the egg, then you twist, you gather all the corners from the plastic wrap, twist it, tie a knot, and you could do this with 10 eggs at a time. You put it in boiling water for four minutes, and boom, perfect eggs. Hmm. It works every time. It also looks, uh, when you unwrap it in your book, there's a photograph of it, it also kind of looks like a flower. So it has an interesting shape to it. Yes. It's... um... It's, co- it's cool looking. And also I like to make them and when there's asparagus in season, just make them, put them in little bowls, and people just dip the asparagus mm. directly into the egg. Mm, I like, I've never done that. Uh, you, you also had, a, um, you had an omelet that used Japanese sticky rice, which I, I've yes. never seen a rice omelet. So how does that work? Well, um, so after Noma did the pop-up in Tokyo, uh, one of the things that everyone in our family was eating for breakfast every day was steamed rice. So the first thing I did when we got back to Copenhagen was go out and buy a rice cooker. And now we have rice for breakfast pretty much every day. But we often have leftovers. So there was one day where I had a lot of leftover rice. And I had just been in New York where I had actually eaten uh, at Sambar and had the crispy uh, rice cakes. Mm -hmm. I love the texture in that. And I remember looking at this leftover rice. I was like, I wonder if I fry it, if I'll get close to this rice cake's texture. And then I'll fold that into the omelet. And I, it was one of these moments in the kitchen. It was so simple. And it was so delicious when I made it. 
I'd, I'd have a little dance too when I do something. And I was like, I need to Google if anyone's done this before. I couldn't find it anywhere. So uh, I, this is a, I'm, it's a dish I'm very, very proud of. Are all the Scandinavian countries, if you want to include Denmark in that, uh, distinctly different or are they becoming closer and closer in terms of culture and food? Well, I think they've probably always been very close because we are quite close. And it's probably like uh, a lot of the dishes are like uh, France and Belgium with uh, who invented the, the French fry. Right. So no, no one really knows. <laughs> Where the meatballs started. Those those little those little Swedish meatballs in the sweet sauce. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it could be little Danish meatballs. You never know. <laughs> um, Danish dream cake. Uh, what's that? Mm. Uh, it's a cake you can get in a lot of bakeries, but it's also the big tray cake that you would bring to school for your birthday in third grade or something. And I've always really liked it, but I never really liked the actual cake base. I've always just kind of liked the topping. So I wanted to make the dream cake with an incredible cake, which is then this like pound sponge cake that I love so much. And I like to poke massive holes into the cake once it, before I put the coconut topping on. So it's basically it's brown sugar, your normal sugar, coconut, a little milk and some butter that you caramelize in a pot. Then you put it on top of mm. an almost finished cooked cake and bake it for another five minutes so that it get the coconut and sugar gets even more caramelized. Mm. It's incredible. That sounds good. So uh, let, let me ask this question. What if you come home after work on a Tuesday night? For some reason, you haven't really planned dinner, and, and you've got to get dinner on the table in 45 minutes or whatever. Could you just go through that process of, of how you would make uh, a, a quick supper given the kinds of things you might have on hand? What, what would you make if you hadn't planned dinner ahead of time? Honestly, just frying up some garlic and some olive oil, throwing in some anchovies, and then just throw the pasta mm-hmm. once it's cooked, obviously, around with that. That's also It's so delicious and so easy. And is that something a four-year-old gets excited about? Yeah, it's pasta. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> just, don't, just don't tell her about the anchovies. Well, she thinks it's just like a type of salt, so she's, she's good with oh. it. I, I lie to them a little bit. But well, it's that's, that's, every parent does. So I've read there's something called huga. I probably totally mispronounced that. Uh, what yeah. is that? Uh, and is that something that's a, you know, a trend in Denmark now? Well, I mean, I think I don't know if it it's a trend in Denmark. It's it's a it's a way of living, and it's it's a, anything can be hyklit. Anything. I mean, and cozy is the closest word, but it's not really the right word. But I mean, there are so many definitions of what hygge is. But for me, it's doing something good for yourself. And for me, there is no hygge. Uh, no matter how many woolen socks or wrinkly covers you have in your couch, if you're not eating or drinking something. That's a very good definition. <laughs> I like that. One, one last thing. Is there any experience you had at Noma or working with Renee? Or is there something that really sticks with you over the years that, that's at the heart of what you guys do together? Our whole life is about food. And eating, I think, is the best way to understand other cultures. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's that would be my like favorite thing. That's interesting because in this world, when everyone's talking about immigration, et cetera, but the the food 
gets across borders really easily. And you're right. Exactly. That's a very good way of starting to understand another culture. Nadine, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That was Nadine Levy-Rizepi. Her book is called Downtime, Deliciousness at Home. You know, to be the significant other of a famous chef may be, well, less than ideal. Paul Child, for example, Julia's husband, actually did dishes when Julia taped her show at WGBH in Boston. But Paul was accomplished in his own right. He was with the OSS during World War II, where he met Julia, and he actually introduced Julia to fine cooking. He was also a poet and a painter of great renown. When I met Paul in the early 80s, he was quiet, always in the background, but well-spoken and talkative when he was asked about his paintings and life in Paris. And that's why it's nice to chat with Nadine Redzepe. She's already made a name for herself as a respected cookbook author in her own right. And maybe that's what people mean by the term significant other. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you enjoy Mill Street Radio, please take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your other favorite podcast app. This helps other people find the show and encourages them to listen. Coming up next, we chat with The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik about a shocking new fad in Europe, putting ice cubes into wine. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. 
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with editorial director J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, polenta. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Today, we're talking polenta. I've done lots of recipes for this. Over the years, I try to minimize the stirring, add cheese. It tends to be heavy. It can be clumpy. And so it's not one of those things that's sort of on my basic repertoire because I don't have an easy way to do this. You went to Italy to figure out the original best way to make polenta. I did, I did. I drove two hours south of Milan to this tiny little hilltop community where there's a polenta mill that's been around since about 1200. And I got there, and for the first time, I tasted polenta that, believe it or not, tasted like corn. And I was blown away. It was so clean, it was so simple, and there were none of the muddy flavors and the heavy flavors that we associate with polenta. But what really blew me away was that it also didn't require any work. And so the wife of the owner of the mill showed me how she made it, and it was breathtakingly simple. She pours the polenta into the cornmeal, into the water, gives it a good, aggressive stir for about five minutes, puts a cover on it, and walks away. An hour or two later, she comes back, and it's done. It was that simple. No. <laughs> look, nothing in cooking ends up being easier and better. <laughs> well, in this case... It is, and it really blew me away. And when we came back to Milk Street and kind of dug into it, we realized it makes sense. First of all, they're using a coarse cornmeal, and those granules are going to have more flavor because they have more of the germ. And so immediately, you got that clean, fresh flavor. But her method of giving it a good, aggressive stir in the first five minutes made a lot of sense because what happens is the corn initially releases a tremendous amount of starch. That starch gelatinizes in the hot water and it suspends the granules. Now, the reason we always aggressively and tediously stir our polenta is to prevent it from sinking to the bottom and burning. But when you've got that gelatinization going on, the cornmeal stays suspended and you don't have to pay as much attention. So, so I don't understand this. Here is an ancient method for making polenta that's easier and better. And here in America, we stand and think you have to whisk it for 40 minutes. How do we go from A to B? Well, we're really good at messing things up here. (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) Well, you know, part of the problem is here, we have a tendency to try to mask the flavors by adding things. We think we're making it better by adding more to it. So we add butter, we add cheese, and you stir it, and you stir it, and you stir it. And all you're really doing is making it heavy and dense. Whereas if you just let it be, 
You walk away, and it's so much better. And so when we adapted it here, we did have to make a couple of changes to the method I learned. You know, uh, stovetops tend to be a little irregular, and getting the heat to be consistent was a bit of a problem. But the solution was actually simple. We followed the same method of giving it that aggressive initial stir, but then we cover it, and we just popped it in the very even heat of a 375-degree oven, and we walked away for about an hour. We come back, we give it a stir, and about half an hour later, it's done. It's clean, it's simple. It's sweet, and then again, it tastes like corn. So, JM, one more time, you went on the road to find the holy grail this time of polenta, and you found it. I did. <laughs> uh, light, simple, and very little stirring. Thank you. Thank you. You can find this recipe and all of our recipes at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. On a trip to Colombia, we discovered that homemade coconut milk is totally different than what you buy in a supermarket in a can. So here's how to make homemade coconut milk in about five minutes. Combine one and three quarters cups unsweetened shredded coconut and two and one third cups warm water in a blender. Let the coconut soften for about a minute, then blend on high until creamy for one to two minutes. Strain with a fine mesh strainer and discard the solids, leaving about a cup and three quarters of coconut milk. For more culinary tips and ideas, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. Next up, Adam Gopnik shares another hot new trend. Adam, how are you? I am well, Chris. How are you today? Good. You, you sound in an upbeat, optimistic mood about the future of the world. Well, I don't know if I'm in an upbeat, optimistic mood about the future of the world. You'd have to be a bit of a simpleton to feel that way these days. But I am in a relatively good mood because, this will come as no surprise to you that it puts me in a good mood, I have just been for a week in Paris. Hmm. Now, you lived in Paris in the 1990s, did you not? We lived for many years. We lived in Paris for almost seven years. But I saw something in Paris last week, Christopher, in a restaurant that I have never seen before and that genuinely shocked me. Would you like to know what that was? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a, bad, a really bad glass of wine. How about that? Well, actually, not, not that far off. So here's what happened. We went out to dinner. It was an insane heat wave in Paris, I should explain, to set all of this up. And as you probably know, very few apartments in Paris, certainly not the one we were borrowing from friends, are air-conditioned in any right. way. But some of the restaurants are air-conditioned, and we went to one that we like a lot, a place called the Rotisserie d'Argent. And it is beautifully air-conditioned, climatisé, as the French say, but still a very hot night. We were sitting there, and a French family beside us, a very elegant, grand bourgeois kind of French family, ordered a bottle of a very good Cote de a wonderful red wine, and they demanded a bucket of ice cubes with it. Now, I took it for granted, because that's what we were doing. We were chilling down a, a Beaujolais that they were going to put it in the ice, which seemed a little strong for a Cote de nonetheless. Not a bit, Chris. They actually poured the wine, and then they put ice cubes what? into their Cote de Rhone. They drank their Cote de Rhone with ice cubes in it on the rocks. As if it was a Coca-Cola or something. As though it were Coca-Cola, exactly. And this was something that huh. in truly 40 years of traveling back and forth to France, I had never seen before. It was a, such a violation of all the rules that you and I had ever been taught about the right way to serve wine that I wondered what was going on. So I looked into it. And do you know what, Chris? This is what the kids call a thing, this business of putting ice cubes in wine. You'll find that there's a whole controversy about it. Food and Wine magazine 
is for it. Decanter is sitting on the fence and the, mag- the French magazine Vigneron is strongly against it. So it's a practice that has really begun and is beginning to spread. I'm not talking about putting ice cubes in, you know, cheap uh, Zinfandel blush. I'm talking about putting <laughs> ice cubes in very good red wine. So, so, okay, so how do the people who support this as being an intelligent thing to do, they say it's okay, how, why? Well, they say it's okay because, A, it's something you feel like doing. It's partly justified on libertarian grounds. You ought to do it if you want to. But I think the real reasons, you're asking the right question, Chris, are actually a little bit deeper than that. Did you know, for instance, that the great, or at any rate, large champagne house of Moet and Chandon now produces a champagne called Ice Imperial, which is designed to be drunk with ice cubes? Did you know this? I had no idea that this was happening. <laughs> this is going from bad to worse now. I mean... <laughs> the whole world is coming apart. But, but I, I could defend that because in one of the original cocktail books uh, from London in the 1920s, the author said a cocktail should be consumed fast and cold. Yes. And I, I think champagne, sometimes uh, you might want to consume it fast and cold. I, I almost understand that. Yes, exactly. One of the reasons, clearly, that, that, that this ice imperial, the whole idea of champagne on the rocks, is passing around is because it gives informality. It turns champagne from a wine into a cocktail. And that's something that appeals to a lot of people now. You and I were talking not long ago about the vogue for the cocktail amongst uh, 20-somethings that was unfamiliar to us. But I'm going to propose that in addition to the release from formality and the pleasure of violating a rule that's been going on too long, that there may be a deeper reason for this. You know how it is that very often new practices start because people unconsciously are adapting to new realities. I, you know, I think of the way that baseball has changed in my lifetime. All of those old one-run strategies, you remember, stolen bases and uh, bunts are all gone from the game now because right. everyone understands the players are too big and too strong and it's become a pure power game. Well, I wonder if in the same way underlying all of this is the fundamental fact about wine today. And that fact is, as I'm sure you know, the increasing alcohol content of all wine being made in the world today. It's a function, as you know, of climate change, of global warming, that as the world grows hotter, the alcohol content of wines is going up and up. So I'm going to propose, as a slightly wild but not, I think, ridiculous theory, that this new practice of putting ice in wine, which seems so shocking to us, is in fact an unconscious way of bringing down the alcohol content of wine that makes it more palatable now than it's ever been before. And you know what's so funny and strange about that, Chris? While we were in Europe, uh, my wife and I were reading Homer's Odyssey. And as you may recall there, all of the wine, and Homer writes lovingly and passionately about wine, all wine there is always drunk diluted. The classical Greeks always drunk their wine diluted because it was the only thing they had to drink. And therefore, they couldn't drink it at full intensity. Well, most alcohol over time was diluted, right? I do wonder, though, if you talk to wine experts today, they say that most red wine is, should not be served at room temperature or should be served at the same temperature as white wine, yep. like 55 to 60. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if it was particularly hot, whether using ice to get it down to the right temperature, maybe it's just temperature-based in that case. Could could That could be. I'll buy that theory um, up to a certain <laughs> point. But we were doing the same thing. It's perfectly true, and it's one of the things that— um, French people um, despair of in America is we serve our red wine much too warm. Uh, and right. we, and they also think we serve our white wine too cold sometimes. But 
the normal way or the traditional way of getting red wine to the right temperature in hot weather was to put it in a in an ice bucket right. rather than putting ice cubes directly in the glass, which I had never seen before. So that I think there's something in that too. It was happening on a very hot day, but I genuinely think that this new and surprisingly widespread practice of putting ice in good wine also reflects, as I say, probably not as a conscious habit, but as one of those unconscious adaptations that we make to the reality that as our world gets hotter and hotter, our wine gets more and more alcoholic. Well, Adam, I'll let you adapt. I have no intention of adaptation anytime in the future. Ice in your wine, Chris. Ice in your wine. I'm sticking to the old ways, good or bad. So, Adam Gopnik, thank you very much. It's Cote de Rhone on the Rocks. Thanks, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. This week, I spoke to Joe Fassler about the egg mogul who ended up in jail. You know, I grew up on a farm during summers, and I do have the utmost respect for anyone who can milk a cow, raise chickens, grow garlic, or make cider. It's really hard work, and vacations are few and far between. And any farmer knows that there are easier ways to make a living. You farm because, at least in part, you love the land and you love the livestock. If you farm because you like money and that's about it, well, you should trade your muck boots for wingtips and head to Wall Street. Good food comes from passion, not profit. Even a backyard gardener knows the difference. That's it for this week's show. If you missed our show or if you want to listen again, please download the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every episode downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to our website. That's 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, watch our TV show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new cookbook, the complete Milk Street TV show cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzaba. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.